Hey everyone, uh, another episode of iFreak Show. Today with you, your host, Alex Bush, and we have a very special guest, Kurt Herbert. Hey, Kurt. How's it going? Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Good. So, Kurt, first, today, what we want to talk about is your recent self-published indie application that you released. But before we do, give us a little brief introduction about yourself, who who you are, what's your experience with iOS, all all of that. Sure. Uh, So, hi, Curtis Herbert, and I have been doing iOS since about when the SDK originally dropped. Before that, I was a web developer, both front-end and back-end. So kind of seeing all the different landscapes you can kind of play around in nowadays. And did consulting uh, starting about 10 years ago, mostly web, some iOS. But then what most people tend to know me for is I started my independent app, Slopes, back in 2013. And that's a GPS tracking app for skiers and snowboarders. And that's something that I've talked about online a lot through my blog and through Twitter and stuff, just my attempts to turn it into a full-time business because it started out as kind of a side project, you know, as an intersection of two things that I liked a lot, uh, snowboarding and iOS. So that's something around 2015 I started to try and get really serious with. And that's when I started writing about it more, just putting myself out there a little bit more to share the experience of trying to turn something into a business. And then uh, around, I think it was late 2016, I was actually able to go full-time with it. I mean, I've been full-time since then, and it's been growing. I'm pretty happy with it at the rate it's been growing. So much so that this year, I finally had to cave and get an uh, Android developer. It's kind of nice to be able to pay for that, but Android developers are expensive. So it's kind of not nice to pay for that. But, you know, hashtag you made it problems, I guess. So yeah, that's kind of been my main shtick for the past couple years. She's past eight years or so. Yeah, uh, some other people know me from a conference I ran back in the day, Coco Love, uh, was uh, iOS and Mac developer conference outside of Philadelphia, which is where I live. That was uh, 2013 through 2016. So it was some time ago, but that was kind of a side project I had until Slopes really became a full-time effort and I couldn't afford to have multiple side projects going on at the same time anymore. Because believe it or not, running a conference is a lot of work. <laughs> uh, so yeah, those those are usually the two things that most people uh, know me for about. That is very impressive, actually. I know so many people who try to make a living on their own apps that they've built, and it's very hard. App economics kind of keep shifting and changing over the years. I remember back in the day, you could you know make a podcast app and sell it for two ninety nine or something, and you'll make a lot of money. But these days. It's hard. So that I kind of want to talk about the, now. What was it? Slopes, right? Yeah. That well, business now, and then at the same time, the the new endeavor that you released, the Simple Genie, right? Is that Sim Genie? Sim Genie. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's briefly talk a little more about Slopes first. How sure. how did that go? And you know, you eventually hiring an Android developer, and you know, all of the developers are expensive, not just Android. <laughs> sure, yeah. But yeah, so how did how did it go? Like how many iterations did you go through and what did, what did it take 
like after a year of sales, you were able to do that or a couple of years? It definitely took a couple of years. So I'm guessing uh, in the show notes, you'll probably link to the Slopes Diaries blog. Mm-hmm. I would check that out. I actually publish all my numbers up there. I will say I'm a little tardy for publishing the 2019-2020 winter season numbers. But other than that, you'll find a complete journal of my yearly revenue from 2013 on. So you'll be able to see before I went subscriptions in 2015, I was earning, I think up until that point, I earned maybe $10,000, something like that over a couple of years. It was really tiny. It was hard. And I kind of went into the market at the time that freemium was very much the thing and make it up in volume was the mindset of put an app out there for 99 cents and get a million downloads. And then all of a sudden you're rich. And I, at the time, was trying to charge $4.99 or eventually up that to $7.99 to try and be like a premium app. But I was hitting this huge wall with being paid up front. And the amount of effort it would take for me to convince potential customers why they should download my app and try it out. So that's part of why in 2015, I decided, you know what, I need to rethink this. And I decided I can come up with like a way to do free trials that worked pretty well for me and have subscriptions, which would be recurring revenue. Like I said at the time, or not at the time specifically, I guess, but before iOS, I was a web developer. So I still pay attention a lot to the web software as a service space. So they've been doing subscriptions and not paid up front for two decades now. So they kind of have this whole, you know, not paid upfront software thing figured out. So I was looking to them in 2015 for how I could do that for an application, for a consumer application, not even something business to business like a lot of SaaSes are. So that's, it also kind of helped that I'm in the ski niche. And the ski niche, I think the big aha moment for me that kind of made it work was we have season passes. And season passes are essentially subscriptions but for a ski resort. And once I had that and I could kind of craft all my messaging around that concept, that is when I think subscriptions really clicked for me. And I I got on board with that pretty early. That This was before Apple blessed any application beyond dating apps and magazines and whatnot to be auto-renewing subscriptions. I was doing manual renewing subscriptions back in the day. So that was, I guess, a really early forte into actual consumer subscriptions. There weren't many other apps trying to do it, especially there weren't many indie apps trying to do it. But that's what think really started to turn it around for me. It removed that big barrier for paid upfront to get users to download the app. Now I got to sell on my terms. I got to have them download the app, trying it, and I could create the upsell around that experience, which is so much easier than five screenshots and a description. (laughs) And I was also able to get the recurring revenue I needed as long as I kept the users happy, brought them back year over year, stuff like that. And since then, Slopes has been pretty much growing at about uh, somewhere between 2.2 to 2.5x every single season. And that took me, you know, the first season was a good amount of money, but not enough full time. But then quickly after like uh, two seasons or so, I was able to go full time on it because I was able to keep so many of those past customers and not have them give me a one time payment and then never hear from them again. Being able to build my revenue uh, year over year, kind of stacking the bricks on top of each other is I, what I attribute largely to really being able to get anywhere with slopes. That and, and constantly iterating. You were asking how many iterations I've been on. For me, a big thing with slopes is just experimenting. 
and trying to figure out what's going to work and trying something new and then getting rid of it if it doesn't work. So Slopes has been through so many iterations of business models. You know, it's not just subscriptions anymore. I have day passes, same as a ski resort. And that works really well for Europeans where season passes aren't quite as popular or they go on a holiday once a year, maybe. So four days worth of passes or something is more worth it to them than a season pass. So like iterating on my business model, iterating on features, trying new things there, it's just something I'm constantly doing. And I kind of approach it more like I think a web SaaS would, where it's just, you know, I finish a feature and I ship it. You know, there are no big major 2.0 updates for slopes ever since I went subscription. I'll have something to kick off the season, but it's just kind of keep on shipping. <laughs> I just realized we didn't talk about what the app actually does to customers. <laughs> so, it's I a- mean, ski, ski resorts, right? The st- uh, sort of uh, around skiing. That, that's the only thing that I picked up. Yeah, yeah. I, sorry, I, I, I had quickly gone over what it did in the very early I, intro. And we'll get, um, get back to those. There's, there, are lo- there are lots of things to talk about there. But-, uh, but yeah, it's a GPS tracker for skiers and snowboarders. So you start slopes in the morning, put it in your pocket, lock your screen. And then at the end of the day, you can go back and see all the stats that you had, like your top speed, how far you went, how much vertical you got. I have a 3D mode where you can play back your movement on the mountain with a 3D mountain. And you can actually see yourself moving around. I'm working right now on some stuff for like more fitness integration to figure out like how hard you worked out because it can be really misleading sometimes. You think you're out there for eight hours and you deserve that second beer. Uh, <laughs> but it actually turns out that everything was nice and groomed and smooth. So you never really got your heart rate up. So stuff like that is some of the stuff I'm playing around with. But it, it's a good augmentation to a skier's day and kind of a logbook and journal for after they're done so they can look back to all the memories that they have. Because these are some of the fun times of the year for people like me. And you know, when it's currently, as we record, almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Philadelphia, I really want to look back and see some snow. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's actually interesting. It makes sense because the niche, the target audience that you have, they already spent money on skiing, right? Mm-hmm. That's not something that... It's not like a movie ticket where... Yeah, they spend money, but it's really they try to save as much as they can, right? This is something where people expect spend money and expect to spend more. And this is, this thing is basically an augmentation of their experience. So Yeah, I mean, uh, I think like every niche, there will be people who are more frugal than others. And I certainly hear from them on occasion. But yeah, you're totally right that in general, the ski industry is one that has some money to it. You know, we have to buy our equipment. You can buy us some set of skis. I would never spend this much on skis, but you can easily spend 1200 US dollars on skis. It's definitely an industry with some money in it, not to mention the travel that you'll put into it to get somewhere, how much lift tickets cost nowadays or season passes cost. So for me, a slope subscription of $20 a year is probably less than they're paying for lunch. You know, since we always like those equations of it's less than a cup of coffee or something. For me, it's less than a burger and a fry. And so you're right that the niche looking at how much it would cost you slopes is not particularly painful most of the time. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So how did you, you've done it solo and that's very hard. Believe me, I know know myself, I haven't went full-time with my own projects, but I, I try to sell a book. And, you know, writing the book is one thing, but then all the marketing and mm-hmm. setting everything up and the landing page where the payment thing actually works. Like all of that, that's not necessarily the core of the, what you're delivering. 
that's a lot of work and you have to wear so many hats. How did you manage it throughout this whole process? And how are you shifting now as you kind of have more resources and maybe can hire help, right? I don't know. I, I don't think I had any grand organization strategy. I, I think most of the time I have a decent idea of where I want to aim for. You know, what's my target over the next year or two in terms of features or how to bring people into the app, stuff like that. And then I have a very short-term focus on the next release. And it's just kind of being adapted to switching roles often. And like right now, I've been working on a fitness feature. And it took me you know, the weekend to design it and today and yesterday to code it. And I'm going to be switching over to some market research stuff tomorrow. And just being comfortable with that idea of like... Okay, you know, I get to code today, I get to code tomorrow, but knowing that it's not all about the code and that my job as an indie is not just that of a developer. Because I think a lot of times people look at it and they think, like, oh, yeah, computer programmer, that's my job. But when you're an indie, like you said, there are so many hats to wear. You really have to get yourself out of the mindset that programming is the main way that you drive revenue or value for your app. You know, there's a lot of things that will actually make a much larger impact to your business than coding itself. You're just going to end up with future bloat if you do too much coding. And you're not going to be doing the marketing. You're going to be neglecting all the market research. You're going to be neglecting so much that would actually drive more revenue. And I think I've always kind of been a jack-of-all-trades, multiple-hat person that kind of realizes there's more to it than that. I love programming, but I also love designing. I won't say I love marketing, but I can tolerate it. So I haven't had any aversion, I think, to really jumping around. And that's just kind of been, I think, my strategy is just keep hopping, being able to box myself and to say, hey, look, you could go down this rabbit hole if you wanted, but you cannot afford to spend three weeks on this feature. You, I know that this feature that I'm working on is great and it's going to be a new premium feature and might drive some people. But I know that the market research I'm starting tomorrow is going to be unlocking a much bigger feature that has the potential to generate order of magnitude more users than what I'm working on today. And having that focus on how I can benefit my customers the most and how I can benefit my business the most, I think is what helps a lot. Mm. How did you pick up, for example, marketing research? So where did you even start, right? How do you go about that? I think a lot of developers kind of ask that. Maybe they want to go indie but, and they know how to code, but then all of those other things, they're just lost, right? Marketing research, how's that done? Yeah. <laughs> do I create a, sp a spreadsheet document and then do, what do I do with it? Well, I mean, that's where you start is the thing. I remember, geez, back in like 2014, 2015, I was starting to play with keyword optimization. And it's something I had no idea what I was doing. I had an Excel spreadsheet. I tried to hack some things together. And it's just over the years of continuing to do it and continuing to try it. It's just something you can get better at. Now, any market research person or ASO person that comes in is going to look at what I'm doing and probably laugh. It's very amateur. But it's enough that I look at it as a lot of other businesses and a lot of other indies out there don't do these things. So just doing them decent enough, you actually already have a huge leg up over the competition, especially if you're hitting multiple of these things. 
But then, you know, I've started to look recently into more outside help. So I have someone who's come in to help me a bit with the market research and stuff like that. And she was able to go in and do some stuff that just blew my mind. And watching how she did things and the kind of questions that she asked and the kind of answers that she was looking for and how she correlated some of that data, I've been able to learn a lot. So if you're struggling with it, it might be worth seeing if you can buy some time from somebody, you know, maybe a dozen hours and see what you can learn from them. And that can be a really good way to kind of level up your game once you've kind of gotten to that amateur level of at least, you know, understanding a little bit that can kind of take you to the next step. Yeah, I like that idea, especially if you have a list, even, you know, maybe revenue, not enough for full full time, right? But there's still some well, some cash that you can then spend on on that. Yeah, I always looked at slopes as like, I would invest uh, easily, like in my mind, I would say easily 10% of the money is going back in the business. I never got in the habit of just taking all the money for myself. You know, I wanted to reinvest to some degree. And I think when you have that mentality of reinvesting in the business, it's a little bit easier to take some of that extra money and say like, okay, well, I'm going to spend a couple thousand dollars to hire someone to help me with this just so I can get this one short-term project done and maybe learn something from it that then I can apply again in the future. Um, versus if you're always saying like, oh, I need all that money myself, then you don't. It, it's harder to justify doing something like that. And you know, some people, they need all the money themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But I, along the way with Slopes, I augmented its revenue with my consulting business. And I had scaled down my consulting business as Slopes grew. So I was able to say, okay, you know, I can take 10% back into Slopes because I have that consulting business. So obviously, can be easier said than done to reinvest the money. But you can be smart. If you have iOS skills, try and find a subcontract. You know, we're still worth a decent amount of money, as you're pointing out. Programmers are expensive. So charge what you're worth. Don't charge like 20 bucks an hour and get out there, get a subcontract. And that can help pay for some of your projects that you're trying to do. Indeed. On the tech side of things, what did you, what was your approach? Because I would think, you know, you're you're solo, right? You, You don't have much time to invest in building your own custom library for networking or whatnot, I would assume. Or correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you did <laughs> do so and it's actually better that way. Well, uh, geez, broad question. Uh, yeah, so, so... <laughs> sort of general approach there, right? Because it, it's a question of time efficiency, mm-hmm. right? Because again, you're solo and you want to ship, but then you don't want to... Well, anyway. No, I think I get it what you're saying. So, you know, I didn't reinvent the networking stack. I'm using a small API layer I wrote on top of NSURL session. I generally try and stay as close to Apple's frameworks as I can with a minimal amount of framework in between me and that. Now, that's not to say I don't use third-party frameworks. My friends like to make fun of my CocoaPod file, which I think last I counted had 26 CocoaPods in there. So I have a lot of widgets going in to help me with things. I'm like, I'm not going to rewrite encryption. I'm going to use a library for that. That's worth a cocoa pot, in my opinion. But I don't use like, you know, Alamo Fire or anything like that. Like I just use NSURL session. And then that lets me focus staying close to Apple. You know, when things change, I usually don't have a million dependencies breaking. And I'm usually able to more easily adapt whatever Apple comes up with. Like when dark mode came out, I was already using asset catalogs. So switching over dark mode, super easy for me. I use storyboards too. So that was less than half a day worth of work for me to adopt dark mode in my application. And then that frees me up 
because I kind of have wider tech stack that I have to worry about. You know, I have to worry about my server side. Slopes has sync and I don't want to use Firebase because I don't want to trust someone like that with all my users' data. So I have my own backend written in PHP in Laravel. That also handles all of my business logic for transactions and receipt validation and all that kind of stuff. So someone can have an account and once they purchase something, it's part of their account. It's not just on their device, part of their re- iOS receipt. And that's been important for me because, you know, as I'm looking at Android, I'm going to be, I already have a bunch of users that leave iOS and go to Android and vice versa. But when they go over to Android, they're not only going to want their data, they're also going to want their purchases to transfer over. So, you know, I have to worry, I think, more than just that smaller iOS stack. I have to look at the bigger picture. And so that forces me to really, I think, look at everything I'm doing and try and judge how much drag it's going to add to me in the future. You know, if I do this, what is my future self going to think of my decision? Is this some lofty engineer perfect thing that I think is going to solve all my problems? And then it probably won't. Or am I doing enough to get by? It's extendable. It's still clean, but I'm not over-architecting it. I'm just kind of building things as I need to build them. And I think focusing on that smaller short-term games like that uh, has helped me stay pretty nimble tech-wise. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I can see the benefit of sticking in this particular scenario since you're solo on specifically on the iOS project, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sticking with Apple's preferred way of doing things is pro- or the recommended out-of-the-box frameworks and such makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've certainly had to build a lot on top of their frameworks. Like I have an entire, I keep meaning to write or open source it or something, uh-huh. but I have an entire bootloader system that manages not only core data migrations, but custom encode migrations I might need. It manages like a what's new kind of controller or interactive view controllers that get triggered when they move from version 1.0 to 1.2, but not for people who just install 1.2. They deal with like multiple scenes on iPad and showing what's new on one, but waiting on the other. Like an entire bootloader system I've had to write, which is kind of crazy. So like there is definitely stuff between me and Apple, but I look at it as I don't want something like React Native or something like that, where like Mm. I'm writing UI in a way that is not the way that Apple writes UI. Like I'm still using storyboards. I'm still using view controllers. I'm still using all that stuff. Hopefully Swift UI soon, but not something that big. You know, as soon as I see something that big and hefty, that's when I start to have some red flags go off in my head. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, React Native, it's it's its own kind of worms, I would say. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, makes sense. I'm thinking sort of another advantage that you have is that you have all the knowledge of all the corners of the app in your head. So it's sort of the way you structure, you're familiar with it, right? And the way you structure kind of makes sense to you. Yeah. You don't have another dev in your, on your team to kind of share it with. No, not on the iOS side of the house. Obviously, like I said, hired an Android developer. And that's actually been uh, not a good side to having it all in your head is now I have to convey that to the person uh, writing the Android app. Fortunately, he understands Swift. He knows enough about storyboards and stuff like that. So he can go in and he can read it. But I certainly Mm -hmm. have to document all the requirements, all that kind of stuff. So that has actually been a downside, I've realized, is staying nimble and keeping it all in my head is great. I move fast. But then there's no backup if I get hit by a bus or if someone else has to come in. It's kind of me going like, oh, shoot, I have to sit down for a week and somehow document all this to give it to them. So it it can backfire as you grow. But yeah, right now, being small and just me on iOS, 
works great. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Same from my experience. Same was up to team size of like three. You're still small enough. You can move fast. Don't need documentation for the most part. And But then, yes, you want to build Android at some point. And that's where it all starts. Unless you yourself do it as well for Android. That's also an option. I guess these days, maybe less because there's just so much to learn. Yeah, it's something I was kind of tempted to do. Like I said, I was on the web before this. I've hopped so Mm -hmm. many programming languages and so many platforms that it's not even funny at this point. So I looked at Kotlin and I've heard great things about Android Studio for the past couple releases. And I honestly looked at it and like, oh, this could be pretty cool. But back to what I said about thinking about the drag I add to myself, I am then cutting myself in half, literally. And that's not a drag I wanted to introduce on my business. Because I had the money to outsource it, it made more sense to find a really good senior Android developer and bring them in to do that kind of stuff. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. So let's talk about your new project, new venture. Sim Genie, right? Yeah, yep. So tell us, tell us about that. So uh, it's kind of born from a scratch-your-own-itch thing. Alice Slopes was actually too. And so it is something for developers like us, uh, you know, who sit there in Xcode all day with the simulator running. And there's a lot of stuff that Apple has added to the simulator over the years. And they really don't give us any hooks to get into that stuff unless you drop to the command line or do something like that with sim control. And so I wanted something that could do a good job to help me and speed up a lot of my workflows. And there was this tool I was using, um, Sim Folders with a PH, and it's been out for years. And that tool had focused on letting you get into the application sandbox. Uh, so you could get in the documents folder, the library folder, whatever. And it would live in your menu bar. And it was a great way for me to go in and like replace data if I wanted to test a migration, reset the Sim, do anything like that really quick. But as Apple added all these other features, Sim Folders never really grew to take advantage of any of those. And in fact, often during the beta periods, it would be broken. Like it just wasn't, I think, a big priority for the people who were working on it. And it was a side project. And I respect that. And, you know, Sim Genie in many ways is kind of a side project compared to Slopes for me. But with all those new features, I was like, you know what? There's a lot I want to test and be able to do here that Apple's hooks could help me with, but I don't want a million bash scripts sitting around in a folder that I need to run every time I want to do something to the simulator. You know, like they added the ability to change the status bars in the simulator now without any code. You can go in and set it to have full cell reception, 9.41 a.m., whatever you want. And that's something we used to have to have a CocoaPod for, or you'd have to plug in your iPhone and use QuickTime to capture a clean screenshot like that. The simulator can do that now, but they have absolutely no way to expose it. So when I'm generating marketing screenshots to put in the app store, and you know, like most people do, I want a clean status bar. 
this was a tool that I wanted to be able to just go in and say, you know what, apply the status bar, the clean status bar. And then I can just go through and screenshot everything and not have to worry about it. I don't have to go into Photoshop after the fact and like, oh, shoot, I forgot to change the Wi-Fi to be full strength, not half strength or something like that. And there's a lot of stuff around that that it does. But ultimately, it, it kind of unlocks the simulator and a lot of the tools that it can do, but just Apple isn't focused on making a UI for. Hmm, okay. So it's a Mac app. What, what is it called? It's like a status bar Mac app? Yeah, menu bar, status bar, menu bar Mac yeah. app. Yeah. And is it available on the App Store or you download from your website? No, it's a download from the website. Mac App Store is something I am considering, but to get SimGenie to work, I'm having to execute a lot of system and terminal commands. So that's not usually that sandbox friendly. I have a couple of sandbox workarounds I want to play with that I think could make it work well enough. But there's certainly a, the, the full power of it was just easier to do without the sandbox. And this is my first Mac app. I've been an iOS developer. So I felt like, you know, for baby's first Mac app, avoiding the sandbox might be good. <laughs> and then I can worry about looking at how I can add the sandbox to the existing code base once I know that people like it and it might be worth it. And I actually ran a poll on SimGenie's Twitter and a lot of people get their developer tools through the Mac App Store. As much as a lot of, I think, devs might look down on the Mac App Store and talk some smack about it, a lot of people still get their tools through there. So it's definitely a place I want to be. It was just, I think, a little bit too much to bite off for my first application. So how, how different it was to switch from uh, an iOS development process to, well, now start building Mac apps. That yeah, it, dramatic it was, change or not as dramatic? Not as dramatic nowadays since they ported over, what, like three years ago? Storyboards and all that kind of stuff. So there was enough familiarity that you know I was able to find my footing pretty quick. But then, of course, there were some new things. Well, new, 20 years old things, but new to the iOS developer, like bindings and stuff like that. They just, I just had to completely learn and, you know, are pretty cool. And I'm still pretty, I fumble around with them. But there were, there were definitely some new concepts like that. You know, the responder chain, we generally don't have to pay attention to on iOS. Um, I feel like we have to pay attention to a little bit more now with the keyboard and the iPad stuff. But in general, you know, most iOS developers don't have to worry about the responder chain versus me as a menu bar app. I certainly did with different windows coming into focus and all kinds of stuff like that. So there was, I'd say it was a mixed bag. You know, it was familiar with some new tools. So maybe like going from, you know, iPhone to iPad, kind of, that might be a good analogy where you suddenly have to worry about the keyboard. And like there are some new APIs that you start to worry about. And all of a sudden your scene delegate becomes very important when you didn't really have to worry about that on the iPhone. There's a lot of familiar, but then there's a lot of new stuff there. But it certainly wasn't as scary as I think I might have thought it would have been a couple of years ago. You know, that it can be intimidating to go to any new platform. And it definitely didn't prove to be anything that really made me uncomfortable. So it's definitely something I would encourage more people to try. Uh, if you like iOS, uh, give Mac OS a shot if you have an idea. It's a fun little place to play around. And then you don't need to use the simulator. You can just run directly on your Mac, which is that nice. Is, that is true, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I've been playing with a new Swift UI, but I, I've been playing uh, in a Mac app. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to see how, how it all fits. And actually... It, it turns out that I didn't do it right. I, I thought I was doing the, what was it called? The universal app that's mm -hmm. now shared all, on all three platforms, iPad, Mac, and iOS. Apparently, I didn't do it right. And I just have SwiftUI and that's it, but it's not shared. 
and I'm basically running a UI window, well, UI window, and I'm shoving the UI, Swift UI element in it as a root. But still, it was fun to play with and different. And I guess it's not Mac specifically, specific thing that it was different. It's the Swift UI, but in the beginning, but then later, as I start to, I, w- I wanted to have my window from my window to have uh, buttons in there. What is it called? Nav bar, pull toolbar, pull, yeah, something like that. Basically, and then I'm in the world of Mac and NS things rather than yeah, yeah. UI things uh, and that's where it's different and kind of odd sometimes yeah it, it uh, there were plenty of times i was typing ui when i meant ns uh, there are a lot of different things to get used to and i'm really curious to see where things go with you know swift ui and them trying to merge the platforms you know mac catalyst this year is certainly they did a in my opinion a really good job with Catalyst. And I feel like this year's release of Mac Catalyst is definitely a solid 1.0 for some kind of cross-platform framework. So I'm really curious to see where that goes and then to see how iOS developers kind of adapt to that new world. Because we're going to get our iOS apps running for free on Apple Silicon Macs. But you know, we can probably do a lot better than that if we check that Catalyst box and get to work on some stuff. So I'm, I'm very curious to see how, I guess, warm the reception from the developer community might be to trying something like that. Uh, I hope it isn't as uh, boohooed as, you know, making a universal iPhone, iPad app was back in the day. <laughs> you know, a lot of people just didn't bother. Uh, hopefully with this, more people will bother. And, you know, that that could be a nice boon to things. You know, my dream has always been, you know, get rid of Slack on the desktop and just give me the iOS version as a Catalyst app because that would actually be a very nice app if we just had a Catalyst version of Slack. And I think there are a lot of apps out there that could they could do that that might have a good iPad app nowadays and then be good Mac apps or at least certainly much better than an Electron app. So I'm really curious to see kind of the future and like how we embrace it as a community. This is where I'm so conflicted. So, okay, (laughs) on one hand, yes, I do agree with you. And I really would like for Slack Electron thing to go away and be replaced Mm -hmm. with the real native. I don't care how it's implemented, just give me native. Mm -hmm. But my problem with SwiftUI and what they've done so far is that I think it's probably going to be very good for developers like yourself, I, I would assume. For indie devs, one to two people teams who are really sticking with Apple's way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And then you get that benefit that you were beginning uh, uh, mentioning at, at the top of the show, right? Uh, close to the platform, the Apple's way right, of doing right. things. So you're nimble and you can change and adapt fast. And you get a lot of things almost for free out of the box as Apple releases them, right? Such as the assets catalog and... Uh, dark mode and things like mm-hmm. that but <laughs> where where i doubted that that it's gonna work is when you grow beyond that when you need to build something with a large team and it might be in, for ios right building a large ios application or in this case even more so building a large mac application because mm-hmm. mac is definitely 
you need it's massive relative to iOS apps. You need even more resources and even more code if you're really building something big. Sure. And that's what I'm afraid is it's just not gonna it's a square peg in a round hole. It's not gonna fit and work with Swift UI. And you really need something more flexible and basically what we had before, which is view controllers that can be controlled from the outside. Mm-hmm. I think that's my main beef with it. I cannot tell a Swift UI mm-hmm. UI hierarchy to, to do stuff. I can mm-hmm. only indirectly influence by changing some data sure. and, then, and then it reacts. And the, the only reason I want to tell it to do stuff is because I want to inject some view controllers or whatever in it or route somewhere else or take the whole thing and inject it somewhere else or something like that, right? Yeah. Currently, it doesn't seem like it's possible even after the recent update in 2020. It's just still the navigation part is not solved. Oh, yeah. And that's where, I mean, I look at it it very much in, you know, back when iOS came out. You know, iOS and iPhone apps were not considered real apps by the Mac community in large. And, you know, to be fair, UIKit was incredibly small at the time. It had such a small footprint. There wasn't much you can do with it. And now you're citing the large apps to be iOS apps and also Mac apps. But iOS apps now can be so big that they are large code bases and they do a lot. And that came out of UIKit. So, you know, I certainly don't view Swift UI today as ready for that. Certainly, it's, I would say, maybe a 1.0 at this point. When I was saying a solid 1.0, I was talking about Catalyst using mm-hmm. UIKit on the Mac. But Swift UI still pretty rough around the edges. So, I, yeah, I agree that I don't think it's ready for that yet. But I certainly am keeping my mind open about it just because I really remember back in the day that, you know, iOS applications were just toys, basically, in the mind of most Mac developers. You couldn't do a serious iOS app, come on, let alone, you know, be an indie and make a business on iOS, come on. Maybe you can make a game and get rich overnight, but then you're done. There was no sustainable business. There was no real indie market there yet when it first came out. So for me, I'm keeping my mind open. I agree it's not there yet, but you know, I wouldn't write it off because if Apple truly does see SwiftUI as their future, which I don't know. I mean, we kind of have mixed signals here. We have Mac Catalyst came out with UIKit on the Mac. Then we also have SwiftUI at the same time. Like we have a couple competing frameworks going. But if SwiftUI is their way forward, I have a feeling they're, it's going to get a lot of the stuff that you would want Maybe not the same as you're envisioning it, but at least that power will have to come because sooner or later, Apple will start building their own apps on top of it. And that means it's going to have to work somehow. They're not, you know, their engineers are certainly not going to tolerate, you know, not being able to do all that kind of stuff. So I would say it would probably come if this is their future programming language. If it's just a fun little side project for them, then, you know, maybe it won't get that powerful. It's true. It was just too much hype for it to be a side project, I think, at this point. I agree. I think it's their way forward. And, you know, I think you can do some cool stuff with it. And it's certainly nice to see Apple come out with a first-party solution when we had a bunch of people who loved React Native or Rx Swift or any of that kind of stuff. You know, seeing an event-driven programming interface like this is 
it's refreshing to see since all of us were trying to build these massive frameworks on top of UIKit to essentially do what Swift UI is doing. So it is kind of nice to see that, you know, Apple is doing what the community wanted it to do and they're not taking forever to do it. You know, Swift UI isn't coming out 10 years from now. It came out now, which I think surprised a lot of us, you know, so soon after Swift. And we waited, what, 20 years for Swift? <laughs> um, or, you know, John Syracuse's Copland uh, article, what was it, Copland 2010 or whatever got updated to? Like, it came out, I think, sooner than a lot of us were expecting. So it's nice to see him kind of embracing what the community wanted in that way. Right. Although I won't accredit them to necessarily doing it to embrace what the community wanted. Obviously, they probably had their own reasons. But it's at least nice to see those stars align. Right. Hmm. We shall see. Yeah, it's again. an interesting time. I, I'm, I remain a contrarian in our community. <laughs> skeptical. Uh, it's fine. Hey, stay skeptical. Stick with AppKit. That's what I like right now is that there's no one true way to do things. You know, I'm working, I, I've had a, that Catalyst checkbox for Slopes checked since it came out. And I have a Mac build of Slopes and I keep plugging away at UIKit on the Mac. But then I just turn around and wrote an AppKit app. You know, there are multiple tools for the job. Pick the one that you like. Pick the one with the power that you need right now. Yeah, that's true. All right, Curtis, we're getting to the end of our show. Do you have a big thing that you learned being an indie developer that, that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, it's definitely possible. You know, there I've met a lot of indies that are out there making a living on Apple platforms and they aren't on Twitter. They don't have blogs. So they aren't the vocal ones that you see out there on Twitter. They're just kind of quietly chugging away, making money <laughs> and not telling anyone. So it's definitely possible. It's definitely not as impossible as I think some doom and gloom people make it. I do think it takes a lot of perseverance. You know, it took me from 2013 to 2016 to make slopes big enough to be a full-time business out of it. And that was a lot of, you know, hard times not having it earn as much money as I wanted, but then good times seeing it grow every year. So you kind of have to keep at it. And while you're keeping at it, keep trying new things. You know, you might look at slopes and see like, oh, look, subscriptions, that worked great. And then you try it and it doesn't work. You know, what works well for me might not work well in every market. And I really think that that's one of the important lessons I've learned is, you know, looking around, trying to find a bunch of different ways to approach the problem, trying them and figuring out what will work with my market and kind of what constraints my market puts on it and stuff like that. And kind of that just constant, just keep on chugging, uh, keep on experimenting is I think really what the indie life is all about. It's not about, you know, you have this grand idea, you put it out there and suddenly you're making a million dollars a year. It's going to take you a long time to build it and to build it sustainably is the important part. Otherwise, you're going to crash and burn and then you're not indie. So you got to figure out how not to do it as a get rich quick scheme. So just keep trying, keep experimenting, really. Nice. Yeah, good, good, good piece of advice. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, 
so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Another thing I forgot to mention, we at the end of the show, we do picks. Uh, yes. Something, oh, you, you know about them. Yes, so, of course. Something uh, interesting that you recently learned, read, watched, whatever. Could be about iOS stuff. Could be about anything else. So yeah, if you need time to prep, I'll give you time. I'll, I'll go first. I got uh, two picks related to this conversation. I, I think that they would be helpful. They're actually not about iOS specifically, but more about, I think, you know, being indie and a small business owner. Two books, uh, let me think. Well, one definitely. Uh, it's called Profit First by Michael Michalowicz. He actually wrote a series of books around that topic, but it's a framework of how to handle your money that comes in into your small business, or if you're an indie developer, you're just a business of one, right? Hmm. And the idea is, as the title of the book states, profit is first. Essentially, a lot of uh, small business owners fall into this trap of reinvesting everything back in in hopes of future growth and barely surviving on, on whatever is left over. Mm-hmm. And it, the idea of that comes from maybe not always they not necessarily want to think about it that way and, and, and want to approach it that way, but it's just the standard accounting process emphasizes that expenses got to be paid first and then everything else, right? Which means all of the other things but paying yourself go first. And that's how people end up with no money at the end, right? Even though they work so hard and maybe have a lot mm-hmm. of revenue, but then they have a ton of expenses. So this book addresses that. It's fantastic. It's uh, for me, I'm, again, I'm not full-time. I'm like you, Curtis, but I have a part-time thing where I sell a book and it should just change everything for me, the, the entire approach. You pay yourself first and then you see what's left. And if it's enough to cover your expenses, great. Maybe you actually have something saved for reinvesting. If you don't, that's a sign that you need to cut expenses or optimize or do something like that. That's sort of how you think, think about it. And the, the book explains all of that and actually gives you practical, actionable things like open a bunch of bank, bank accounts and one is going to be for this and expenses, another one's for profit, third one is for taxes, and so on. It's fantastic. And another pick, I mean, actually, the, his entire series of books is fantastic. I think another one that I really like is Clockwork. This one is also around small business setup, but more of a when you get to the point where you actually want to start delegating and automating by hiring other people, virtual assistants or employees, how to approach that so that they don't keep coming back to you make to make decisions and basically like automatons but actually own it and make the decisions themselves so that you can be free to work on your business, not in your business, which is a big difference. But yeah, so those are two two of my picks. We'll, we'll have them in show notes. How about you, Curtis? 
Uh, so I guess I'll use a verb that you did not use. Build uh, will be the center of my pick. And it's some Legos. <laughs> ah. So, uh, you know, like I think many of us enjoyed Legos as a kid. If any of you out there remember, there was a pirate ship that came out in the early 90s, I think it was, late 80s, the Black Sea Barracuda. And uh, it was hard to get. It was very hard to get. My parents instead got me the English colonial ship, uh, which was vastly inferior, but the only one they could find in stock and afford. So, you know, it was hard. But Lego just recently re-released it with an updated version that is much, much more complex and much more interesting. And it is the Pirates of Barracuda Island, if I remember the title right. And it is a wonderful build. So if you are a person who likes puzzles, perhaps you also like pirates, this is a very nice 10 hours that you will spend just you know, putting some pieces together and just being a little bit zen, get away from digital, get away from the work, whatever's stressing you out. Just sit there on your kitchen table and build a pirate ship. And you'll have something really nice to put on your bookshelf when you're done. Oh, my God. I think I'm remembering now. I'm looking at the pictures of it. I When did you say they released it? Like many years ago, first time? Oh, yeah. It had to be late 80s, early 90s. Yep. I didn't look up the exact <laughs> date. But this was certainly a childhood thing for me. This was me quite too. some time ago. Yeah, I think I remember. Or at least something similar in that theme. <laughs> it was a very popular set back in the day, from what I remember. Sold out. I know it's hard to get a hold of. But it is definitely one of the sets that a lot of people seem to recall from their childhood, if they were lucky enough to have parents that bought it for them. Right. <laughs> but it was definitely one that a lot of people wanted. So yeah, the, the new one is, you know, much more complex. Uh, it actually has like an inside versus the old one didn't. So you have like the cabin and all kinds of stuff like that. It actually comes shipwrecked on an island. And then you can take the boat off the island and build the boat. And the boat was the original set. The island is the new thing. So it, it's a really kind of cool almost like transformer in a way and it's just really good build quality uh it's you know looks really nice on a bookshelf uh and it's 10 hours so it's a good good decent sized uh distraction from the world and uh it just came back in stock it was sold out uh right as the pandemic started and i had had an alert on it and it just came back in stock i think uh three weeks ago so i don't know if it's still in stock no promises dear listener but hopefully it is and hope you can enjoy it. I think I'm remembering now when I was a kid, the thing that I loved the most about that set was the guns. Yes, the cannons. cannons. You can pull yeah. them back. Yep, uh, shoot. <laughs> I forget if the original manual did this because uh, I didn't own it, but the new manual actual, actually when it's showing you the cannons that you can fire cannonballs out of them has a picture of a Lego person's head and an eye with an X and a cannonball hitting them in the eye and like a don't do this. So it's... <laughs> It's so you can very much shoot with these things and that's don't aim it at people. Indeed. Yeah. Hmm. Fantastic. How do people can reach you on, on the inter, intrawebs? <laughs> so yes, you know, Twitter is our water cooler in the iOS community. So you'll find me there as parrots. That's the plural of the bird. You can also find me with links to most of the things I do at curtisherbert.com, most specifically linking to slopes, getslopes.com, and simgenie, simgenie.app. But all those links you can get to from my main website. All right, great. Uh, thank you again for coming in, Curtis. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.